Welcome to the phone booth on the Fool's Gallery Podcast Network. My name is Keenan, and I would like to take a second to thank several of our patrons. To Allie Weir, Alyssa Meyerly, Christopher Hackett, Kimberly Hackett, Judith Hackett, Corson Ellis, Joan Ellis, Kevin Ellis, Jim Young, Lou Silverman, Richard Kaufman, Zach Adams, and Sam Lucci, thank you for your support. We couldn't make this show without you. If you would like to join them, go to www.patreon.com slash foolsgallery and take a look at our rewards. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the phone booth episode 2, H2O. It's uh, Joe Pollard. Hey, Joe. Over here, in the back. Today's interview stands on the far side of an empty warehouse. This place was once the headquarters of the Human Reclamation Project, the brainchild of the woman who greets me with a tired smile and a soft handshake. Her name is Taylor Browning. Let's uh, talk in my office. The echo will be murder on your mic. Taylor stands beneath a banner that reads, Bring Back Our Humanity. Someone obviously had trouble removing it from the wall and gave it up as a lost cause. She looks worn, older than her 58 years. A lifetime of resisting the world Becca Orlovsky built seems to have taken its toll. Come on, you're just in time to watch me clean out my desk. Watch out for the leak. I would ask the super to fix it, but I don't really see the point now. Sit, sit. Sorry about the mess. Moving out can be a real pain. I found an apple this morning that had grown legs and was walking away. That was a joke. Sorry, I'm a little nervous. That's all right. What are you nervous about? This story, it's... It's not something I like to relive. I wouldn't have agreed to this if... Well... If my therapist hadn't suggested it. She thinks the retelling will help. Help with what? Letting go. Miss Browning, if you're not comfortable... No, no. This is good. I want to do this. I just need... Let's start before I lose my nerve. I hope you'll forgive me. I wrote some of it down. Just the harder parts. Anything that helps. Good. Good. Okay. Where do we start? At the beginning. Where were you on B-Day? The Isle of the Sun. Where's that? It was an island in the Gulf of Aden. The locals called it Presulando, which roughly translates to the Isle of the Sun. And what were you doing there? My wife asked me to go. Your wife? Geraldine? Yes, Jerry. She was... I mean, we were both anthropologists. On our fifth wedding anniversary, Jerry proposed an expedition. It was her way of being romantic. It didn't interest me much at first, but I could tell right away that Jerry was smitten. Why was that? Her parents were from the mainland, just 30 miles from the island. 
She wanted to study the land, the people, get in touch with her roots, you know. There was this tribe, the Kanuchi. They were an uncontacted people. Uncontacted? It means they've never been exposed to the modern world. I remember how the idea excited us. An entire society, completely untainted by our technologies, our religion, our prejudices. I remember Jerry calling them pure, uncontaminated. I laughed at that, but agreed to go. I could never say no to Jerry. The Isle of the Sun. It was supposed to be an adventure. And for a few months it was. The Kanuchi were generous. They shared their food, their customs, and several offers to share their beds. <laughs> Jerry described those early days as cushy. And God, she loved every second of it. She spoke the language better than I did. But it was more than that. She was like, I don't know how to explain this. Try. <laughs> You ever hear the saying about the two kinds of anthropologists? No. Not surprising. But basically, there are two kinds. The ones who want to understand people, and the ones who already do. I was the former, Jerry the latter. She would dance, laugh, and sing with them. The tribe welcomed us almost immediately, or at least they welcomed Jerry. I was treated with a kind of polite detachment. It was a small difference, but one that became painfully clear when the chief gave Jerry an honorary tattoo, welcoming her into the tribe. He was a strong, charming man, the kind you instantly want to like you. You can imagine I took it pretty hard when I was not offered the tattoo. Jerry held me through the night, trying to make the sting go away. She held it together for me. She always did. As she speaks, Taylor clutches her left shoulder, where a large box-like scar distorts the skin. It's almost like something was scraped away. I do my best not to look at it for the rest of the interview. For weeks, everything was fine. Sure, it was hot and hard, but the tribe was kind, and I was with Jerry. If we needed anything, we would request it via satellite phone, and it would be dropped ten miles from the camp by helicopter. We would hike out there in the heat and humidity for gear, equipment, food, and water. I thought you couldn't bring anything back to the village. In the beginning, we couldn't. Uh, the whole idea of the expedition was to observe a culture without the influences of the outside world. Corrupting it by bringing things back from drop was out of the question. I would argue that our very presence corrupted our examinations, but that was the cost of doing business. In the beginning, what changed? It started getting hot. I mean, really hot. We were on an expedition in the Gulf of Aden. We expected a little heat, but nothing like this. The sun burned the humidity away, leaving behind scorched air that was barely breathable. Then their well went dry. Then the closest stream. 
The tribe was used to going without water, but as the heat increased, even their options began to run out. They were dying, and it was our job to watch them die, to not intervene, to let it happen, and record. And did you? Jerry came to me a few days before our next drop. She wanted to request more water. She wanted to save them. We fought. I didn't want to destroy our study. I'll never forget the look she gave me. Almost like I was betraying her. She didn't want to be with someone who could watch families die and do nothing. So she ended it. I began to cry and Jerry said coldly, don't waste the water. And then she was gone. (laughs) Taylor, would you like to take a break? (laughs) No, I'm fine. (sighs) Where was I? Um, how did Jerry get the water on the island? She had a drinking buddy back at home base who handled the drops. He would sneak us candy bars and our provisions, you know. God, I can't even remember his name. Jerry had it all planned. We had a scheduled drop of 100 mason jars for storage and shipping. Her guy would add an extra zero to the order and fill them with water himself. And how did the tribe react when you brought water back with you? (laughs) We were heroes. I was inducted into the tribe, given the honorary tattoo I had been so jealous of. Jerry didn't cheer with the rest. I was too excited to notice but her clothes were soaked through with sweat. This wasn't anything new. The heat made puddles of us all. But knowing what I know now, well, that was the night. It was the beginning of the end. That night, though we didn't know it, was B-Day. The world and our lives were about to change forever. But we were feeling pretty good about ourselves. I remember the sky was clear and there was a rare, cool breeze coming over the sea. We thought the pink clouds were from the sunrise. A good omen, the chief told me. Everything was going to be okay. We drank and laughed and drank some more. And through it all, Jerry kept sweating. It was unnatural. She was soaked morning, noon, and night. It poured off of her in droves. I was worried. I called home base requesting extraction at the next drop. I didn't tell Jerry. We weren't speaking. But our study was over. It was time to go home. The day came and we hiked out. I was hoping for an extraction, Jerry for water. But when we arrived, well, there was nothing there. No helicopter, no equipment, no food, no water. 
And you had no idea what was happening to the rest of the world? None. We couldn't know. Because on our island, there was only one person who had changed. Only one. Only Jerry. It was a week before water rations ran out. Jerry found me lying naked in my hut to relieve some of the heat. I hadn't had a drink in two days, and I was sure I was going to die. But Jerry held a jar to my lips, and sweet, life-giving water flowed into me. I drank deeply, greedily. Where did she get it? She wouldn't tell me. So I stopped asking. It's hard to care about anything else when you're that thirsty. She returned the next night and the next, each time with a new jar filled to the brim with water. Slowly, my strength returned. I pretended not to notice, but Jerry looked gray and wrung out, like she had given too much blood. But we were both alive, and I tricked myself into thinking everything would be fine. And it was. Until a small boy stumbled into my hut and saw me drinking. What happened? They dragged us into the center of the village and threw us onto the ground. The chief was screaming, talking so fast I couldn't make out the words. But I understood his meaning when he held up our half-drunk mason jar. Jerry was pleading with him, trying to explain that I was dying. But then a woman stepped forward, dragging her tiny son behind her. He barely had the strength to stand. Jerry's voice grew silent. Someone let out a terrifying scream of anger and desperation, and the tribe collapsed upon us. We fought and clawed for freedom, but there were too many of them. A knife was drawn. I saw it flash through the air. And Jerry's scream was cut short. The tribe froze. I thrashed, trying to free myself, trying to get to Jerry. But when I saw her, she stood there her hand at her throat, covering the jagged cut that should have claimed her life. Her hands were wet, but not with blood. They were wet with water. Fresh, warm, life-giving water. I couldn't understand that. She... She should have been dead, but... It was too much. I fainted, leaving Jerry alone. Taylor. Please, please just let me finish. I just need to finish. Okay. I woke to tender hands tipping water past my lips. I thought it was Jerry. Her hands were gentle holding me together. But when I opened my eyes, it was the chief holding me. 
His voice was deep and reassuring as he asked me to follow him. He led me outside. A line of what seemed to be the whole tribe snaked around the village, each one holding an empty mason jar. I knew where it led before I saw it. Jerry's hut. As we approached, a small child rushed past me, his hands clutching a jar filled with water. I knew what was inside and I wanted to run, screaming as far as I could away from it all. But it was Jerry. My Geraldine. So I stepped inside. She was bound to a post, stripped to her underwear, limp in her bindings that forced her into a kneeling position. It had been so long since I'd seen her naked. I was shocked by how much weight she'd lost. Bones stretched skin to grotesque length. Her eyes burned in her skeletal face. I tried to run to her, but guards with spears jumped between us. They herded me away from Jerry. From the woman I loved. The chief knelt down next to me, placing a massive hand on my shoulder. He was shaking worse than I was. He spoke. His voice sounded far away, and although I didn't recognize the words, I understood him. He looked away as an old woman, her fragile hands clutching an empty jar, shuffled into the hut. She placed the jar underneath Jerry and bowed her head. After a few whispered words, she grasped a knife that lay between them. Then she drove the blade into Jerry's belly. I screamed, but my throat was too raw to make noise. Jerry grunted in pain. The wound was mortal, but no blood came out. Just water. It flowed over the knife, the woman shaking hands, and into the jar. She bowed her head and raised the jar to her lips. She drank deeply, greedily. I felt sick. They were drinking her. When she was done, the woman laid the jar back under the wound for seconds. She began to sing a beautiful and sad song. I began to cry. In the end, it was all that was left to me. Jerry raised her head and her eyes met. All the color was gone from her face. Don't waste the water, she said, and managed a small smile. 
stopped crying. The chief tried to pick me up, but I shoved him away. I ran for Jerry, but was tackled to the ground. I kicked and thrashed, screaming for freedom, for Jerry. But I was too weak. I was dragged from the hut, past the long line waiting to quench their thirst. I woke the next day, bound just as Jerry was. I refused all water that day. But when morning came, thirst took me again. I was missing time, blacking out and coming to without much warning. When I woke, I was in her tent, with Jerry feeding me water, making me drink. She was still bound, but was able to hold me. I stared up at a face I didn't recognize. Her plump cheeks were gone. So too were the twinkling eyes. She didn't look like Jerry anymore. But this new one still held me in the same way. It'd been two weeks since they'd taken her. Every day they would line up outside her hut and fill their jars. They let me stay with her in the nights. After they drank their fill, I was allowed to untie her from the post and carry her gently to her sleeping mat. The chief wanted us to be comfortable, but he made sure I never untied her hands or feet. Jerry was frail. Every breath looked traumatic enough to break her in half. Each day brought more cuts. Each night they healed as if they had never happened. But they did leave a mark. She was losing something. I could never tell what it was, but I felt its absence. She was dying. Dying in every way, but in the body. I knew what I had to do. I held her as she held me and told her to let go. She was holding it together like she always had, but didn't have to anymore. I told her to let go. <laughs> Just let go. And she did. Her hands dissolved and slid right through her bindings. But then she began to lose form. Her elbows and shoulders splashed onto the ground. I called out her name, crying for her not to leave. And she listened. She reformed and curled into me. She smiled. And for the first time in weeks, I saw the old twinkle in her eye. Stop crying, stupid, she said. You're wasting water. 
I laughed. <laughs> she was free of her bonds. We could run. And we did. Out of the village towards the sea. Towards anything. Too tired to plan. Too desperate to care. We hit the beach before long, and the water stretched out before us. We fell to our knees and waited. It wasn't long before they found us. The tribe surrounded us, spears lowered, ready to take us back. The chief stepped forward. His eyes spoke an apology I could not accept. But Jerry seemed to. She kissed me on the forehead and rose to meet him. For a moment, they stared at each other. A lifetime of silence passing between them. Jerry nodded. And then she turned and walked into the sea. The first wave hit her. She stumbled but held it together. The second wave came, then the third, and Jerry, my Jerry, gave in and dissolved into the waves. And just like that, she was gone. Sorry. Yeah. Me too. I sat on that beach through the night, staring at the foam of the waves. The Kanuchi didn't trouble me. With Jerry gone, there wasn't any point. For a time, the chief sat next to me. We did not speak. I didn't even look at him. But he was there. That night, for the first time in months, it rained. The drought was over. Just in time for it not to matter. When the sun rose, not knowing where else to go, I returned to the village. It wasn't long before the Kanuchi started showing signs of strange powers. Strength, invisibility, everything the rest of the world was already dealing with. I never found out why they developed power so long after B-Day. I never cared enough to ask. I was done studying people. One morning, I woke to a commotion in the village. I exited my hut to find two flying women land in front of the chief. Things had quieted down enough on the outside for someone to open a drawer that held a file that said where we were. We hadn't been forgotten. They were there to take me home. I left the village without speaking to anyone. The chief and I had no words for each other. We both carried the weight of what had been done. I imagine we both still do. I gave the village one last look and then allowed them to fly me away 
from the Isle of the Sun, away from the Canucci, away from Jerry, and towards the new world. And with that, Taylor rises, her moving box under one arm. We wave to the super as we exit the building. She asks me to hold her box as she gives up her keys. I can't help but look inside. The box is nearly empty. Just a picture of a sandy-haired woman beaming up at me. And one mason jar, filled to the brim with water. This has been a production of the Fool's Gallery Podcast Network. Today's episode was written and directed by Keenan Ellis, produced, recorded, mixed, and mastered by Joseph Freeman at Freeman Recordings, and starred Sidney Blacksell and Keenan Ellis. Music composed by Joseph Freeman. Theme composed by Alexander Taylor. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us online. You can also check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and of course our website, foolsgallery.com. Lastly, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash foolsgallery. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time for the phone booth episode three, The Book of Becca.